90.9 FM, to be enjoyed at any temperature. Broadcasting on Treaty 7 land and on Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW, 90.9 FM in Calgary. Maintaining liberty and freedom in a time of terror is always difficult, and we have made some dreadful mistakes. Think of what happened to people of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast in World War II. I think we learned from our mistakes. We won't make that mistake again. But it's not being so overwhelmed by security concerns. Of course, security is important, but our individual rights must be preserved. Otherwise, we're no different from the forces that we're fighting against. That's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Ruth Bader Ginsburg on gender equality. Legal battles for gender equality didn't begin with the women's movement of the 1960s but it laid the groundwork for the historic 1972 Supreme Court decision that made gender discrimination unconstitutional. That case was successfully argued by then 38-year-old Brooklyn-born attorney Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She won five of the six gender discrimination cases she argued before the Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a trailblazing force for equality and social justice. She was director of the ACLU Women's Rights Project. In 1993, she was appointed to the Supreme Court. She died on September 18th at the age of 87. Her dying wish was that her replacement not be confirmed until a new president has been installed. In honor of the iconic RBG, Alternative Radio presents this recording from 2012, when she was hosted by then University of Colorado Law School Dean Phil Weiser in Boulder. And now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In those ancient days, I entered law school in 1956 when women were perhaps 3% of the lawyers in the country, no more. No woman sat on any federal court of appeals. There had been only one in history when Franklin Delano Roosevelt appointed Florence Allen from Ohio to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. When she left, there were none until Shirley Hofstetler in 1968. So in the years when I was going to law school, no women on any federal court of appeals, of course, none on the Supreme Court. I had no woman teacher that was unheard of. What was law school like in the not-so-good old days? Well, my entering class numbered over 500, and of those, nine were women. How did we feel? Well, we thought all eyes were on us, so we better be prepared because if we weren't, it would reflect not only on ourselves but on all women. 
To see the difference, I will tell you about a colleague of mine at Columbia Law School. Now, many years later, it's the mid-70s, and women are in law school in numbers. And this great professor said, I think it's great that we have so many women students, but I have a certain longing for the way it was. When the class was moving slowly and you needed a crisp right answer, you called on the woman. She was always prepared. She would give you the right answer and then you could move on. Well, nowadays there's no difference. The women the women are as unprepared <laughs> as the men. The law school that I attended had two teaching buildings. Only one of them had a women's bathroom. So if you were in class and you had to leave, well, you might miss some of the professor's pearls, but if you were taking an exam, time-pressured exam, in the building without the bathroom and had to make a mad dash to the other building, but the thing that I marvel at now is that we never complain. That's just the way it was. There was no Title VII. I graduated in 1959. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed discrimination on the basis of race, national origin, religion, and sex. But in the 1950s, law firms and some of the finest judges were upfront in saying they wanted no women. They would feel uncomfortable dealing with a woman, or as I often heard, we hired a woman at this firm once, and she was dreadful. <laughs> How many men did they hire who didn't work out? So it wasn't easy to get that first job. The first job was all important, because if you got it and performed well, then the next job was secure. Well, I had a great professor, Gerald Gunther. He was a great constitutional law scholar. And he was in charge of getting judicial clerkships for Columbia Law School students. And I was his special cause. He was determined to get me a federal clerkship. So he recommended me to a judge who always hired his law clerks from Columbia. And I said, my candidate for you this year is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And the judge said, well, I've looked at her resume. She has a four-year-old daughter. How can I rely on her? And the great professor said, Judge Palmieri, give her a chance. If she doesn't work out, there's a man in her class who will step in and take over for her. That's the carrot. The stick, if you don't give her a chance, I will never recommend another Columbia clerk to you. Now that's how I got my first job, but it was at, <laughs> it was at least a paying job. Um, Justice O'Connor, who graduated from law school maybe five or six years before I did, very high in her class at Stanford Law School, no one would hire her. So she volunteered to work for a county 
attorney free for four months and said, if you think I'm worth it at the end of four months, you can put me on the payroll. That's how she got her first job. Sandra was alone on the court for 12 years. And by the way, when I showed up three weeks after pancreatic cancer surgery, it's nothing compared to Sandra was on the bench nine days after her breast cancer surgery. In any case, we belong to the National Association of Women Judges, and they knew just what would happen when I got there, number two. So they had a reception at the court in our honor, and they presented us with T-shirts. And Sandra's read, I'm Sandra, not Ruth. Mine, I'm Ruth, that's Sandra. And nevertheless, every term that the two of us sat together, one lawyer or another would address me as Justice O'Connor. People who know us know that we don't look anything alike and we don't speak alike. But it was a woman's voice, and the woman was Justice O'Connor. Then I was there all alone, and how did it feel? Lonely. It was the wrong perception for people to see just a little woman and eight larger men. But now, if you come to the court, I mean, you really should. We are all over the bench, because of my seniority, I I sit toward the middle. Justice Kagan is on my left end, and Justice Sotomayor on the other. And no one has called me Justice Kagan. No one has called Justice Kagan Justice Sotomayor. These young, by my standards, women, are not shrinking violets. They are very active in questioning it at oral argument. So now the perception is, yes, women, women are here to stay. And when I'm sometimes asked, when will there be enough? And I say, when there are nine. People, <laughs> people are, are shocked. But there have been nine men and nobody, nobody ever raised a question about that. There are only nine of us. And when I speak, my my colleagues listen just as I listen to each of them. But that experience, women of my generation, all of them have had. When a woman spoke, it was time to tune out. She was not going to say anything very important. But most of that, I think, is, is gone today. The challenge of gender discrimination is one that you spent a lot of your career fighting. Chief Justice Rehnquist joined your opinion in the United States versus Virginia, calling for women to enter the Virginia Military Institute. And he also wrote the landmark Nevada versus Hibbs case, concluding that the Family Medical Leave Act would apply to state employers. Let me go back to the case you first mentioned. It was my last argument before the court, it was in the fall of 1978. It was a case about putting women on juries. It isn't all that long ago that many states either 
didn't put women on juries at all, allowed them to sign up if they wanted to serve, or had an opt-out system that is an exemption for any, any woman. This case was of the latter kind. It was from the state of Missouri. And the clerk in Kansas City would send out notices for jury duty. And then the notice would say, if you are a woman, you are not required to serve. If you don't wish to serve, check off here. If no card was returned, the clerk would assume that the woman didn't want to serve, with the result that there were almost no women on Kansas City, Missouri juries. So this was at a time when most states had changed. There were just a few holdouts, Tennessee, Missouri. Um, and I had a precious 15 minutes to argue. I divided the argument with the public defender from Kansas City. I spoke second, and when, when I was done, about to sit down, satisfied that I, I got out, the major points I wanted to make. And then, then Justice Rehnquist, he was not yet chief, said that, so you won't settle for Susan B. Anthony's face on the new dollar. This is the same man that when I joined the court and my commission was going to be presented by Janet Reno, most attorneys general like to be called general. Janet said, I am not a general. I am Ms. Reno. Well, the chief wasn't so accustomed to using Ms. He knew Miss and he knew Mrs. And he wanted to make sure that he could say it smoothly. So we had kind of a dress rehearsal before we went in. He said, Ms. Reno, Ms. Reno, three times. <laughs> we didn't care about getting getting it right. Then in the VMI case, he didn't join my opinion. He jo did join the judgment with the result. This was about admitting women to the Virginia Military Institute, a facility that the state of Virginia operated for men only and had nothing comparable for women. So it, it, it wasn't a case about separate schools, the women colleges, most of them were on our side. The idea was that the state cannot make an educational opportunity available for one sex only. In any event, the chief joined the judgment, and that left Justice Scalia as the lone dissenter in the VMI case. And the Hibbs case about the Family Medical Leave Act, and the chief's understanding that it was important not to make this a maternity leave, that it should be part of a worker's life when you have a sick child, a sick spouse, a sick parent. You can take time off without putting your job in jeopardy. Well, I'd like to say that, that I had something to do with the chief's education, but I don't think that's true. I think the cases that came before the court influenced him, but most of all, I think he was influenced by his granddaughters. One of his daughters was divorced and she had two girls. And the old chief 
kind of took responsibility for being a male parent figure for those girls. They loved him, and I think he, he thought about how he would like the world to be for them. With respect to that first step in Reed versus Reed, could you relate how you got involved in that case? Reed is a good example of that series of cases because they were all genuine. There were no test cases in the sense that they were set up by uh, any, any organization. Sally Reed was a woman from Boise, Idaho. She and her husband had a son. They separated, and Sally was given custody of the boy when he was, quote, of tender years. Then the boy reached his teens, and the father said, I should spend time with him. And the family court judge said, I suppose so. Now he needs to be prepared for a man's world. Sally thought that the father's home was not a good place for their son to be, but the judge made the decision he did. The boy was severely depressed, and one day took one of his father's many rifles and killed himself. So Sally wanted to be appointed administrator of the boy's estate, not, not because it had any value, it didn't, but for sentimental reasons. The Idaho law at the time read, as between persons equally entitled to administer a decedent's estate, males must be preferred to females. Now, Sally Reed took that case with her own lawyer from Boise, Idaho, through three levels of the Idaho courts. And then when a colleague of mine read the report of the Idaho Supreme Court's decision in the Journal for Lawyers, Law Week, he said, this is going to be the turning point case for gender in the Supreme Court. And he was right. Sally Reed won a unanimous judgment. The court pretended not to be doing anything new. But if you look back even to the, quote, liberal Warren Court, 1961, the court decided a case called Hoyt v. Florida. Gwendolyn Hoyt was the petitioner. She was what we would today call a battered woman. One day, her philandering husband had humiliated her to the breaking point. She spied her young son's baseball bat in the corner of the room. With all her might, she brought it down on her husband's head. He fell to the floor, and that was the end of the argument and the end of the husband and the beginning of the murder prosecution. So Gwendolyn Hoyt thought if there were women on the jury, they might better understand her state of mind. And even if they didn't acquit her of the murder charge, they might come in with a verdict for the lesser included offense of manslaughter. She was convicted of murder by an all-male jury, and when the case came to the Supreme Court, the unanimous Warren Court said, we don't understand what this complaint is about. Women have the best of all possible worlds. They're not on the jury rolls, that's true. But if they want to serve, 
they can for the asking. All they have to do is go to the clerk's office and sign up. Well, think of how many men would sign up if they didn't, didn't have to. And he was Wendell Hoyt told this and being just dumbfounded that they didn't understand her plight. That was in 1961, the liberal Warren court. Ten years later, Sally Reed's case came before the, quote, conservative Burger court and a very different response. Um, might you, in either case, talk a little about the difference between trial work and appeal work? There were some cases that I started at the ground floor and took all the way up. Stephen Weisenfeld's case was one such case. But our cases were not the kind of dramatic trials that you might watch on, on, on television. They all presented a constitutional question. So let me talk about Stephen Weisenfeld's case, which we brought in the Federal District Court in New Jersey. This was a man whose wife was a math teacher in high school. She had a healthy pregnancy. She remained in the classroom till the ninth month. She went to the hospital to give birth, and the doctor came out and said, Mr. Weisenfeld, you have a healthy baby boy, but your wife died of an embolism. Well, Stephen Weisenfeld was determined that he would not work full-time until his child was in school full-time. He would earn the minimum that he could make and combined with Social Security benefits, make a living for himself and his infant son. And when he went to the Social Security office, they, they said, we're very sorry, but these are mother's benefits. They're not available. They're available to widowed mothers, but not widowed fathers. I came to know about Stephen's case when he wrote a letter to the editor of his local newspaper. And he said, I've been hearing a lot of talk about women's lib. This is what happened to me. How does that fit in? Tell my story to Gloria Steinem. So at the time I was teaching at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, someone in the Spanish department came from the same town and she read this letter and she said, that's wrong, isn't it? And I said, well, why don't you suggest to Stephen Weisenfeld that he contact the American Civil Liberties Union? And that's how we, we started his case in, in the district court. It wasn't a question of putting on evidence. The facts were all undisputed, but of arguing the point that this law, which was described as beneficial to women, after all, widows got the benefits, disadvantaging only men, that all such laws, the root of the discrimination, is against the woman. Here was Paula Weisenfeld, who paid Social Security taxes just like the rest of us, but they didn't gain for her family the same protection as the family of a male wage earner who had paid into Social Security. So the, the discrimination begins with the woman and then the man because he is, his role is parent rather than breadwinner, 
doesn't get the benefits. There was a unanimous judgment of the Supreme Court in that case. And by the way, we got it from the district court, from the court of first instance, to the Supreme Court before Jason Paul Weisenfeld, before he reached his third birthday, and that is record speed for, for federal litigation. Anyway, the court reached a unanimous judgment but divided three ways. The majority thought it discriminated against the woman as wage earner, the very argument I just presented. Three thought it discriminated against the male as parent. And one said, I see this from the vantage point of the baby. It makes no sense that the child should have the opportunity for the personal care of a sole surviving parent only if that parent is female, not if that parent is male. Other cases that I was involved in from the ground floor was dealing with, uh, the pre I call it the pregnant problem. Uh, into the early 70s, if a woman taught in a public school and she began to show, could be somewhere between four and six months, she was put on what was euphemistically called maternity leave. It was unpaid leave. She had no right to return. The school district would call her if and when they wanted her. And one of the reasons for this policy was, after all, we don't want the children to think that their teacher swallowed a watermelon. <laughs> Then there were a whole series of cases involving women in service. If you were a woman in service, pregnancy was considered, it was called a moral uh, or administrative ground for immediate discharge. So that another type of case, uh, a woman who had a blue collar job wanted to get health insurance for her family. The, her employer had a better package than her husband's employer. So she said, I'd like family coverage. And it, her supervisor said, well, I'm sorry. Family coverage is available only to men. Women can get single coverage, but men are the ones who have to cover the family. So in all these cases, you can see what's at work. The woman is seen as someone who is at most a secondary pin money earner. The man is the breadwinner who counts. So when the man steps out of his proper role as breadwinner and wants to take care of a baby, the law was not there to protect him. And similarly, the woman who wants essentially to get equal pay doesn't because she is considered not the real breadwinner in the family. So like the Weisenfeld case, you brought a number of cases where it were the, the men who were suffering based on the distinction. Can you talk about what drove that decision and why you chose that strategy? The first case in that series was the Weisenfeld case. And, and so the benefits, the Social Security benefits he sought were child and care benefits. Then there was the same 
differential for uh, on retirement. Uh, a woman could get benefits for herself and not for her spouse, or when she when she died, old age and survivor's insurance, the man it could not collect as survivor. So after the Weisenfeld case was won, we brought a series of cases to end all those gender lines in the, in the Social Security law. Perhaps I should say something about how I stopped using the term sex and started using the word gender, and it was in the Weisenfeld case. I had a great secretary at Columbia Law School who was typing my briefs, and she said, I'm typing these briefs and all over the word sex is sticking out. Don't you know that the first association of that word is not what you want those judges to be thinking about? <laughs> so use gender. It's a nice grammar book term. It will ward off distracting associations. <laughs> But the, 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 the message that we were trying to get across is that when you pigeonhole people on, on grounds of race, religion, whatever, and you not, don't let them be free to be you and to be me, as was a wonderful song by Paul um, Thomas, that people should not be held back by man-made laws from using whatever God-given talent they have, that girls as well as boys should be free to aspire and achieve. You're listening to Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Gender Equality. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get CDs, MP3s, PDFs of this program, and our special book offer. Our website is alternativeradio.org. Well, what is interesting to think about this revolution of the gender discrimination doctrine is it takes root in 1971 with Reed versus Reed, over a hundred years after the Equal Protection Clause that forms the foundation of this doctrine was adopted, as an instructive case study in constitutional law, what lessons do we get from looking at this doctrine that didn't come around until after a hundred years based on the underlying constitutional text? How does that speak to issues around originalism or jurisprudence? Well, first, you know that the original Constitution, including the Bill of Rights, in the original Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the word equal never appears. And to some people, that's startling because, after all, the Declaration of Independence, that was the motivating idea that all men are created equal. Why wasn't the word equal included in the original Constitution? For an obvious reason. It was the odious practice of slavery. 
That's why we don't get the equality principle written into the Constitution until the 14th Amendment, one of the three post-Civil War amendments, and it says in grandly general terms, nor shall any state deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. Well, the reaction to that was everyone knows that the equal protection clause is about racial segregation, racial discrimination. It is, has nothing to do with, with women. And if you ask the framers of the 14th Amendment, did they think that that meant that women would have the right to own property in their own names, contract in their own names, sue and be sued in their own names? They would probably certainly not, say certainly not. Were they here today? I think they would agree that the idea of equality has growth potential, and it was meant to have growth potential to keep up with society as it changes from generation to generation. So the, one of the earliest arguments that was made was in the 1870s by a woman who, who, who thought that, well, she's a citizen, she should exercise the most basic right of citizens, she should be able to vote. So she invoked the Equal Protection Clause, and the court said, of course, women are persons. We agree with you. Nor shall any person be denied the equal protection of the laws. Women are persons. But so too are children. And no one would think children should have the right to vote. That, that was the attitude in the 1870s. I think the idea of equality and appreciation that racial discrimination holding people back because of who they are and not what they can do is not compatible with a society that truly believes in the equality principle. So it was in World War One, you know, we went into World, uh, World War Two. World War Two. we went into World War Two with segregated troops. We were fighting a war against racism and yet, our armed forces practice racial discrimination. It was the awakening in the Second World War, I think. First, to the problem of apartheid in America, and then to the notion that all people should have the opportunity to aspire, achieve, to be whatever they have the ability and will to do. So I think the people who wrote the Equal Protection Clause would probably say, yes, in the 21st century, it certainly includes, we meant it to include people who were once left out. I mean, other people who were left out, Native Americans, we're not considered citizens. A student, high school student in the auditorium follows up that by asking about the rights of gays and lesbians under the Equal Protection Clause and how their 
issues um, are likely to uh, follow a similar arc. Do you see that similar dynamic playing out in that context? Bill, you know that that question runs up against the so-called Ginsburg rule, <laughs> which is when I um, was before the Senate Judiciary Committee, my rule was you can ask about anything I've written about any of the hundreds of decisions I wrote when I was a judge on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, but you can't ask me a question about, about an issue that is likely to come before the court. And I think everybody knows that not so long ago, Congress passed a law called the Defense of Marriage Act, which says marriage is between a man and a woman. And if you come from a state that recognizes same-sex marriage, like Massachusetts, like New York, no other state has to recognize that marriage, and it won't be recognized for any federal purposes, for example, Social Security. There has been a challenge to the constitutionality of that act. The Court of Appeals for the First Circuit held it unconstitutional. A petition for review has been filed in the Supreme Court. We haven't acted on it yet, but it would be extraordinary for the court to be asked to consider the constitutionality of a law passed by Congress that a lower court had held unconstitutional. So I think it's most likely that we will have that issue before the court, and then the person who asked the question will have the answer. Another question comes from the CU Auditorium. The Lilly Ledbetter case was one where you wrote a very emotionally charged dissent that you, if I recall, read from the bench, which is a rare act. Can you just reflect on that and also how it felt to have literally your request in the dissent that it's up to Congress answered in the Ledbetter Act passed, and I believe the first law that President Obama signed. I should perhaps preface my answer by saying that when an opinion is ready to be released, the author of the majority opinion will summarize the decision from the bench, certainly not read every word of the often long opinions. And then we'll note at the end, Justice so-and-so has filed a dissenting opinion, period. So dissents ordinarily are not summarized from the bench unless you feel that the court not only got it wrong, but egregiously so. And that was what I thought in, in the Lily Ledbetter case. I think most of you have heard about this case. Lily Ledbetter was an area manager for a Goodyear tire plant in Gadsden, Alabama. And she was the lone wo woman in such a position at that plant. When she was engaged in the 1970s, she got the starting salary 
for people in that position. But over the years, her pay slipped in relation to her male peers. Whether she suspected it, well, she didn't want to be known as a troublemaker. And then one day, when she was close to retirement age, one of her co-workers put a slip in her box. It said her salary, then it gave the salary of all the men doing the same job. She was getting 13 cents on the dollar less than the most junior occupant of the same position. So she, she brought a complaint under Title VII. She had a jury trial and won a sizable verdict. The decision was upheld on appeal to the Court of Appeals. And then the Supreme Court said, Ms. Ledbetter, you sued too late. Don't you see the law says you have 180 days from the discriminatory incident to file your lawsuit? 180 days from the first time her pay slipped? Well, women who are breaking new ground don't want to rock the boat. They also know that if they sue that early on, the defense will be had nothing to do with her being a woman. She just didn't perform as well as the men. When year after year she gets good performance ratings, and even an award as one of the top performers, that defense is no longer available. Also, employers, many employers, do not give out salary figures, so how would she even know? Her view, which I fully shared, was every time she got a paycheck in which her salary reflected discrimination, every month the discrimination is renewed. And so she would have 180 days from each paycheck to begin her lawsuit. The experience that Lily Ledbetter had is, is something common to women of her generation, of my generation. And yet the court interpreted this 180 days to run from the very first incident of discrimination. And she didn't sue then, and too bad. My dissent said, basically, Congress, you wrote a law that says, thou shalt not discriminate on the basis of sex and employment. Surely you meant Lily Ledbetter's case to be covered. My colleagues have given a parsimonious reading to this law, and, and my statement ended, the ball is now in Congress's court to correct what I see as a misperception by my colleagues of the will of Congress. And inside of two years, the Lilly Ledbetter Act passed overwhelmingly bipartisan support, and it was the first law that Obama signed. A number of 5-4 decisions that became very high profile Bush versus Gore, Citizens United, and the Affordable Care Act got a lot of popular attention and often were accompanied by commentary that the court was looking like more of a political actor. How do you answer that charge? There inevitably will be cases that will divide 
that way. But overall, our agreement rate is much higher than our disagreement rate. So we had a 15 five fours last term. We had 25 unanimous judgments. But agreement is boring. Nobody writes about that. Disagreement is interesting. And in the cases where we are, um, the cases that are not heady constitutional questions, there are very unusual alliances. But th those, I mean, my disagreement rate is highest with Justice Thomas and, and next with Justice Scalia. But last term, Justice Thomas and I agreed in 61% of the cases, and Scalia, 62%. So it's not as though in every case there's the usual suspects, the suspect four and the majority of five. Still, uh, on uh, important questions like campaign finance, we do hold very different views. But we know that this institution, which I think is like no other in the world, is something all of us prize beyond any of our individual egos. So to make it work, we have to be working colleagues, even friends. The Supreme Court is the most collegial place I've ever worked. And I'll give you, well, what you mentioned Bush v. Gore, yes. It was probably the most intense time I was at the court because we granted review of the Florida Supreme Court decision on a Saturday. Briefs were filed Sunday, oral argument on Monday, decisions were out Tuesday night. And there were sharp divisions. It was late at night. I told my clerks to go to Justice Kennedy's chambers and watch the news reports with his clerks. He, he was on the other side. And then I got a call in my chambers, and it's Justice Scalia. And he said, Ruth, why are you still in chambers? Go home and take a hot bath. So as trying as that time was, we had to go on to the January sitting. And we did. Um, and things were almost the same. Looking back at all the cases that you've decided, can you pick out the ones that were the most influential and maybe the one that you're most proud of? I'm very proud of my dissent in the healthcare case. I think it, over time it will be influential. And I'm very pleased with the VMI case, which, um, I mean, most of the members of the VMI faculty were elated because it meant that they could accept women applicants, they could upgrade their applicant pool and get better <laughs> students. But when people said to me, well, women don't want that kind of rat, what, what, what it was called the, the system that they have for the, for the first year, the rat line, 
And I said, I wouldn't want it. My daughter and granddaughters wouldn't want it. But there are women who do want that experience, and why should they not have the opportunity? You know how it, it all began. It, the decision that paved the way for BMI was Hogan against Mississippi University for Women. Hogan was a man who wanted to be a nurse. And uh, Virginia University, uh, Mississippi University for Women had the best nursing college in the area. So he wanted to go to that school. His case came up Justice O'Connor's very first year on the court. It was a five to four decision. She wrote the decision saying that the state college for nurses had to admit men who were qualified. And if you, well, first, when I brought that decision home to my husband, he said, Ruth, did you, did you write that? <laughs> um, and second, it was her, her appreciation that there's nothing better you can do for, for a field that historically has been dominantly female is to get more men to be doing the job because when men get into the field, pay tends to, <laughs> to go up. So it was that, that you, you asked about male plaintiffs. Well, this was accidental, but it turned out that Hogan's case, trying to get into the women's college, was the principal authority for the women who wanted to attend VMI. Have you gotten letters from women who've since attended VMI? Oh, yes. Uh, and, and from parents of men. And in fact, the, the one I prized most was from a man who, who had graduated from VMI about 10 years before the decision. And he said, in my life, by the way, only 15% of the graduates enter the military. Most of them have business careers in business or in politics. And there was quite an old boy network to help graduates on their way. So this man wrote, in my, in my life, I have met women who are as determined as I am, tougher than I am. Why shouldn't women have that choice? Then some months later, I heard from the same man, and the letter enclosed something in tissue paper. I opened it up. It looked like a little tin soldier. Well, the letter said, this is the key debt pen that is given to every mother of VMI graduates. My mother died last week. I think she would want you to have her key debt pen. What's the greatest threat you can see to our American legal system? Well, the threat that we will be so overcome by security concerns that we will sacrifice the freedom, the individual rights that our country has stood for, maintaining liberty and freedom in a time of terror is always difficult, and we have made some dreadful mistakes. Think of what happened to people of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast in World War II. 
I think we learn from our mistakes. We won't make that mistake again. It's, it's not being so overwhelmed by security concerns. Of course, security is important, but our individual rights must be preserved. Otherwise, we're no different from the forces that we're fighting against. How do you feel the Supreme Court has fared in the terrorism cases it's seen in the last decade? I think the court has done pretty well, uh, starting with the government's first position on Guantanamo Bay was Guantanamo Bay is no man's land. It's not part of the United States. After all, we only rent it from Cuba. The majority position was to the extent that law exists in Guantanamo Bay, it is U.S. law. There is no other power, certainly Castro was not controlling what was happening there. So the government had said the writ of habeas corpus doesn't extend to Guantanamo Bay, and we held that, yes, it does, that for that purpose, it was part of the USA. What qualities should we be focusing on as we train the next generation of lawyers? A law degree gives you a license, in a sense, a kind of a monopoly on the practice of law. Law is supposed to be a learned profession. If you are a member of a learned profession, you are not satisfied with merely turning over a buck. You know you have something special, and you owe it to your community to use your talent to help make things a little better for others. I think a lawyer who commits herself to public service, yes, can make a living that's necessary, but also to remember the people who desperately need representation and will not have it unless you care. So I do not think someone who says, I'll do my job and I will collect my fees and I'm not interested in the rest of the world. I, I do not consider that person a true professional. That was Ruth Bader Ginsburg on gender equality. She spoke at the University of Colorado at Boulder in 2012. A pioneering figure, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a Supreme Court Justice from 1993 to 2020. She passed away on September 18th. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and are supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program and for our special book offer, Howard Zinn on History, a collection of some of his best essays, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. And in solidarity with you, our listeners, we're offering free of charge MP3s, PDFs, and printed transcripts of today's program, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Gender Equality. Just call us at 
1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to the University of Colorado Law School. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Judy Collins singing Democracy. It's coming to America first The cradle of the best and of the worst It's here they got the range And the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst It's here the family's broken And it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open In a fundamental way Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Hello. Hello. What is it? CJSW. This is CrispinGlover.com. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you.